Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Fair Data Podcast, where we, where we discuss all things fair, making data findable, accessible, interoperable, and reusable. I'm Rory McNeil, host of the Fair Data Podcasts, and my guests today are Laura Klinkhammer and Neve McSweeney, who are PhD students at the University of Edinburgh and lead the Edinburgh University chapter. Laura and Neve, welcome. It's great to have you on the podcast. Hi. <laughs> thanks very much for having us. Yeah, thanks for the invite. <laughs> a pleasure. Uh, so the, the two of you have very effectively grown the Edinburgh Reproducibility Chapter into a thriving forum for discussion and exploration of a wide range of important topics, including open science and open research, lab cultures, and career progression, to name a few. I can't, well, I can't wait to delve into the Edinburgh Reproducibility Activities, but before we do that, could each of you tell us a bit about, first, what attracted you to science, and second, how you ended up pursuing a PhD at Edinburgh? Do you want to go first? <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, so, yeah, so as you mentioned, Rory, uh, we're both PhD students in psychiatry. And I suppose I became introduced to to research. So I did my undergrad in psychology and English literature um, in Trinity College in Dublin. Um, but I suppose I was always quite interested in science and in school, always had, like, you know, was quite curious about how things worked. And, and then I think um, that, you know, inspired me to pursue um, a career kind of or to, to pursue like further education in psychology and, and English which I really really loved um, and then I suppose when I was in my third year of my undergraduate I got a a research internship over the summer which is working with neuroimaging data and I suppose that was like my first introduction into what it like what it's like to be a researcher and I think for me, it was quite, uh, yeah, a very formative experience. Because I don't think I realized prior to that that you can actually, you know, have a career as a researcher and like kind of introduce me to the the thriving research culture at universities. I think when I was younger and in school, I think if if you liked science, it was like, oh well, you can go and do medicine, or you can study biomedical science, or you can kind of do this like lab based work. So I think, um, under like. I suppose being exposed to different forms of research really um, piqued my interest, and then kind of that then um, I suppose led me down the the PhD route after after my undergrad. Yeah, um, and my background is um, in psychology, and I studied um, my undergrad at Leiden University in the Netherlands. Um, I came here in Edinburgh for a two month internship in the summer of two thousand eighteen, um, working with some some big data and then I kind of rolled into a PhD after that um, which is more with um, patient population and like, clinical data and gathering data collecting data um, so that sort of grew from there and I think my interest in science or well particularly psychology was actually I already had that from a very young age so I think primary school I already knew I want to be this there was no there was a bit of tunnel vision there, but I only found um, evidence supporting this. So um, I'm glad I, I, I went into psychology. And then um, when I had to make the decision about coming to do a PhD or when um, that, that offer came up, I was very much in doubt of whether I wanted to go down the clinical route or the research route. And I thought, well, this is coming up now. This is an opportunity now. So I might as well take it and see if research is for me in the long run. And um, yeah, so I, that's why I ended up doing a PhD here. Fantastic. So, so at what point, and in, in you both described, interesting how you got started and then undergrad and, uh, and then going on to do your PhD. 
at what point in this kind of process or journey did you become aware of of open science and, and open research? Yes, I suppose for, for me anyway, it was actually like a very specific moment. So um, I was lucky enough in the first year of my PhD, um, I went to the British Neuroscience Association conference in Dublin. And at that conference, um, Uta Frith gave, who's, I think she's a retired professor now based down in London, but um, she gave this um, t- keynote lecture on, I think it was called the three R's. And she spoke about like reproducibi- re- reproducibility and the kind of, uh, you know, replication crisis, specifically in psychology. And this is something that I'd become, like, I was made aware of during my undergraduate. Um, but I don't think it really like sunk in, in terms of like what this means, like in a practical sense for researchers. And I remember, you know, be- being very like compelled by her arguments that we need to move away from this kind of fast science narrative towards a slower science and, and how like what that looks like on, on a day-to-day basis as a researcher. So I think that was yeah a key a key moment for me. Um, and I suppose, yeah, in kind of my own research journey, I was thinking immediately after that, okay, well, like how can I go about applying this to my own research and and how can I do that? And I think, you know, um there is a kind of tent sometimes there tends to be a divide between like, you know, fair research practices in theory and kind of this open science practice in theory and then actually what that looks like and how you can apply it and I think something we've always tried to communicate is that it's not a kind of one size fits all and it's also not a a all or nothing approach that you know even implementing open research practices in an incremental fashion and that's very much dependent on the nature of your research uh, research project is is really important so Yes, it was that's how I kind of came um became aware of that. Um and then it was actually I suppose this kind of then led into how Edinburgh reproducibility came to came to be. Yeah, because yeah. um we were having um at that point I think more regular sort of like online coffee meetings because it was um was it the first lockdown, I think. Yeah, yeah. it was like summer twenty twenty. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we were trying to be a bit like supportive towards <laughs> e- for each other. Um you know, helping us sort of help, helping both of us to kind of get through that period. And then we just had these regular coffee chats and Neve brought up this topic about how, what she learned. And then um, for me, something kind of clicked because I'd also heard like bits and pieces about, you know, the replication crisis um, in my stats courses in undergrad, you learn about like how to adopt a sort of, I guess, good research practices, but to have it sort of all come together in such a, um sort of like movement almost like or or yeah i guess how would we like a framework like a framework of of reproducible open reproducible science it just made so much sense and um i was yeah interested interested right away and um we started talking about reproducibility and how there would be uh an opening for um Edinburgh to still have that because we didn't have a reproducibility chapter at the time so and we were actually quite surprised by that yeah. like, I think we were both like oh I can't believe Edinburgh doesn't have this chapter already and that's yeah so I yeah. think that kind of started started the, yeah. the whole process and it grew quite quickly from there yeah so how did you how did you actually get did you have to how does it work just for people who are might be interested who don't have their own chapter how did do you reach out to UKRN or how does it how do you actually get get going so the reproducibility has their own, it's their own organization. So it's one, it's it's kind of not the same as the UKRN. So it's um, the reproducibility organization. And um, they have a sort of framework in place um, where if you go to their website, there's some instructions, I think, there that quite easily tell you what, who to email or who to get in contact with first. 
and then you need to just provide some details of who are going to be running the sessions and then you um i think they they make a page for you somewhere on and your university on their website and then you're um, being asked to set up an open science framework page as well and you'll get added to um some um resources so they have um for instance a zotero library where they have collected a bunch of introductory papers to um, open science topics and um, there's a slack channel um, which you can use to introduce yourself and then also ask other people how they started things and i think different chapters have kind of um like have slightly different formats so we've we've taken a more like seminar style sort of formats and then others are um more adhering to this sort of more traditional journal club style where they discuss a paper yeah. sometimes even each week um so yeah it depends a bit on what your preferences are and what you are of course how much time you have um but you can they're they're really quite flexible about how you can um uh use this format yeah and i think just to kind of follow on from yeah. laura's point there's so many resources on the website to get started so i think you know like in terms of our journey into reproducibility and how it kind of you know became more established in edinburgh like it literally just started with a conversation and like oh this would be cool like and also i think it was really nice as well for both of us to kind of team up and work together because setting up reproducibility was kind of an idea i had like straight after i was at that bna conference and i was like actually you know this is an awful lot of work and like a big undertaking for one mm -hmm. person and i think you know that's one of the kind of i suppose key messages that we've had or we've tried to kind of emphasize in reproducibility that it is this community effort and it's very difficult to kind of do it by yourself and it's all about like collaborative collaborative working and and, and team science and, and, and team research yeah. and we were also very fortunate to be met with such enthusiasm from people in the university because it seemed like as soon as people heard they were like a lot of people were were keen right away to um to help us with shaping this so we um set up this working group and asked people in the university what do you want this you know reproducibility to do for you what kind of sessions would you like to see and we've gained a lot of useful input from that and that sort of also became the basis of um this this teams channel that we grew where we've um sort of yeah kept adding people in who were interested in reproducibility and other open research kind of activities so yeah it just it grew very quickly because yeah. there was so much enthusiasm and i think this was something that we weren't like we weren't, weren't aware of no. yeah because like i think this like the the idea very much started like oh let's try and do something on like a smaller scale within mm -hmm. our department so like we are both in the same research group so we're okay well how about we just organize a reproducibility within psychiatry and then i think when we like floated the idea with some people in our department they're like oh actually maybe it could be kind of a broader neuroscience yeah. uh, neuroscience journal club and then that kind of just kept <laughs> snowballing and like i think for us it was really encouraging because yeah. I, like, I certainly wasn't aware of how many open science and open research advocates there were across the university. And actually, it's been really lovely that reproducibility has become this hub. So it's kind of a platform for people to kind of come together and yeah. share ideas. And like one really nice thing about it is that it, you know, unites people from all different backgrounds and all different career stages. So we have, you know, undergrads, master's students, PhD students, right, um, kind of through to, to PIs and, and, and postdocs as well. And also... Yeah kind of you know um 
I suppose li- research support yeah services. research support services and kind yeah. of library staff as well so it's been really yeah. nice that reproducibility has nice has become mixture. that kind of yeah it <laughs> has become like a, a a kind of supporting framework for open research activities across the university Yeah, that's a that's a great uh, that's a really uh, encouraging story. It, it, uh, so, uh, just to so I think the kind of uh, most people would think of it this as being something which is researcher driven, which it obviously is. But it's also nice that um, at Edinburgh, you it sounds like there is interest from research services and support people as well. So did they? How did they, did they reach out to you, or how did that happen? Um, I think they well started coming to the sessions and during the discussions uh from the sessions they would sometimes um bring up uh related services for instance and and you know um point people towards relevant resources that the university has to offer and then of course when we had that uh teams channel grow there were more people coming in from the library as well so we heard a bit more it's kind of a place where people also share like relevant events and things and then um this might be jumping ahead a little bit, but now we are collaborating with the library also to um, set up this Open Research Edinburgh Open Research Conference for the first time this year. So we've gotten actually very um, involved with each other <laughs> over time. So yeah, yeah, that's that's really fantastic too. It also kind of shows how things when things develop, you you get nice things happening that you didn't perhaps anticipate at the beginning. That's uh, that's excellent. So. Um, I know you've got a lot, you've done a lot, but you know, what are some of the, what are some of the topics you've covered in your, in your recently, in your recent monthly sessions and on, on, on the, uh, on the subject of unexpected things happening, did any of the topics result in some new developments or insights or directions that you actually hadn't expected? So, yeah, we've been attending like, um, slightly different sessions. So I can comment a bit on like the most, um, the session I did in January was one on, um, I, I discussed the paper, so there we actually took the more like sort of reproducibility, more traditional journal club format. Um, and I just remember from um, that session that was on errors in re- research and what, how should we handle when you know somebody makes an error in research? How do we um, respond to that? How do we respond to it if it's in our own research? Um, and how, yeah, basically, how do we get to the point that, we, that the feedback is constructive? <laughs> And we talked also a bit about um, p-hacking. And I remember one um, of the attendees saying um, it that when they were training, um, they are in psychology, but when they were training, they were actually actively encouraged to p-hack. And that was not that long ago. <laughs> um, and it's it's sometimes, it's easy to forget that it's, it's still quite a new sort of movement. Although people have developed it quite far, the whole open research framework, like not that long ago, it was the complete opposite was basically being trained in formal training. And it wasn't a secret either. Like it was, this is just the way you do research. This is how you get the results in the papers. And this is um, how you build your career. And that just um, was kind of an interesting realization for me that I thought, oh, oh, wait, yes, of course. Um, yeah, and I think that still happens, like, still and, happens. like naturally, because that's how 
you know, kind of progress and, and promotion is rewarded in academia. It's like, okay, well, you know, these journals, and I think it is changing, but like, you know, there's still quite a far way to go and that people are still quite interested in like interesting findings or novel findings. And like, I think it, it's been quite interesting, like hearing stories like the one Laura described and how you can kind of reframe that. And like maybe in the past, it was probably seen as like, oh, like, let's follow the interesting findings or let's follow the interesting results to actually that is p-hacking and cherry picking the findings. And I think it yeah. was, it's, um, it's nice to, see that like there is a kind of greater awareness um but again like one thing that we've uh, one thing that i think discussions that like that highlight is that sometimes this work can be a bit of an echo chamber and uh, mm. and one thing we've tried to do is to expand the audience because you know obviously the people that show up to reproducibility every month are keen like they're interested we're yeah. kind of like preaching to the converted already mm -hmm. and it, it has been a challenge actually to kind of try and expand it beyond that um, because I think you know your ability to embrace open science practices is dependent on a lot of factors so it's it's dependent on the kind of culture in your lab it's dependent mm -hmm. on the nature of your project and you know, I think it's just dependent on yourself as well. And I think from discussions that followed from what Laura was describing there, I think it's been interesting for like for me anyway, and like us, I think we reflected um together a, a while ago about, you know, what like what is it that inspires you or motivates you to embrace open research? And I, I think for me anyway, when I went to that talk uh, or the lecture uh, back at B&A in 2019, like once I'd kind of, heard about this way of doing science and this kind of slower approach and kind of it being more ri rigorous and and reproducible and really transparent in how you do your science I couldn't really like unlearn that and mm. um, so I think for me the open science and the open research practices that I try to embrace as much as I can comes from like a moral place that like you know this is the right way to do things but I don't know like I think that's yeah. Yeah, that's not like shared, obviously, by the whole science community, not that they're like mm -hmm. immoral researchers, but I think it's just good to reflect on, on like where your drive to embrace open science comes from. Yeah, and I think that was also an interesting point that came up in the um, session we had in um, February when we talked about equity, diversity and inclusion in open research. And um, it's just it's really important to be aware when we talk about open research and when we talk about encouraging people to um take uh, part in open research and, and open research practices, that we also need to acknowledge that some people just have better access to conducting these kinds of practices and um, are maybe in a lab, for instance, that um, embraces more open research practices. And then um, other labs might not have that culture as established yet. And then it can be quite difficult if you're, um, or if you're the, the one who has to sort of be the pioneer and even uh, and for some people, there might be bigger risks involved in in being so uh, out there. And, and if they, um, for instance, if we're talking about like the job security, which is very much um, in academia, unfortunately, still based on how much you publish, <laughs> um, the publish or perish culture, people from certain backgrounds who may, for instance, not have um, a lot of resources to fall back on if their career in research, for instance, stagnates for we need. Yeah, we need to just be aware that there might be more risks for people from certain um, backgrounds to kind of take the leap into fully embracing open research. And we just need to be, I think, really aware of that. And we talked about this particularly in that session about 
also in the relation if we're in relation to like policy changes and policy making. So if open research becomes a standardized practice that um, is considered to be like a necessity for if you want to do good research at the university, then we need we need to make sure that everybody has equal access to such practices and um, that also if we reward reward people on doing such practices, we don't just reward the people who had the more easy access in the beginning, but we also need to reward initiatives that might need a bit of extra resource, a bit of extra help before they can fully flourish. Um, yeah, so th I think these were some really interesting discussions we had during that session as well. And um, that, yeah, that's, that's something that's kind of stuck with me, that idea. Yeah, interesting. So I'm just reflecting on the, the um, um, last week's guest who was Relitza Madsen, and she had some interesting points to make. And one of the one of the things which she brought up was the um, depending on what not so much at the lab level, but say at the um, you know at the department or institute at not at the university level, not at the lab level, but oftentimes there's an intermediate or intermediate units which are actually really important in determining access, policy, support, all of these uh, kind of things. And she had, she made something great, I thought it was a great suggestion, but what I'd never heard before, she said it, it would be really useful. She said all of all, every institute or every school has a, has a health and safety committee. And these, they meet regularly and they're very um, conscientious and proactive about making sure that health and safety regulations are, well, they don't, Typically, anyway, they're they're conscientious about making sure that health and safety regulations are actually followed at at whatever it is, school department, whatever. So it would be nice if we had a fair fair data or open science committee, and they were equally proactive and equally empowered and equally had funding to make sure that open science practices are followed, and also that appropriate support is given so that they can be followed. Because if you had that, then you would kind of institutionalize support. Um, anyway, that was just an interesting thought because I'd never, never thought about that analogy, and also hadn't thought so much about the kind of. Oftentimes, there's a big gap between the lab, and especially at a big university, um, and the university. So it's interesting. Anyway, so I, I know I'm trying to put you on the spot about about your lab, but um, kind of moving from from the theory to the the practice. Uh, how does how does data and fair data how, how have you managed to fit that into your own research practices and 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 of your own, but also uh, of the lab and the labs that you see around you? Yes, yeah. okay, I could start with that. So, <laughs> yeah, I suppose, yeah, and I think this, like, it's important to highlight as well, and this is based on just what Laura was saying about kind of equity, diversity, and inclusion in, in the context of open science, that, like, one thing we've tried to emphasize is that your ability to embrace open science and open research practices does vary a lot depending on a number of factors. And I think one of them is the kind of research you do and the kind of data you work with. Mm -hmm. And I think so for like, yeah, for the purposes of kind of my research. So I look at like bio, biological and psychosocial factors associated with adolescent depression. And I look at that kind of through a neuroimaging lens. Um, but um, it's been quite an interesting I suppose, like, I don't know, self-study in terms of how, like, the the extent to which you can embrace these open practices. So, like, for example, one, like, it, within my kind of PhD research, one side of it is uses data analysis. So I use a really large data set based in the States where all of this data has already been collected. 
And then I have another study, which is like a smaller local study where I actually recruited young people um, myself. And then uh, they kind of, you know, took part in a neuroimaging study and I have that data. So like, it's been quite interesting thinking about like, okay, how can I apply open research practices in both contexts? So um, I've been able to kind of, I'd say, like fully embrace open science in terms of the work I'm doing for my data analysis based project. So I've actually done a registered report for the main project for that study. So for those of you not familiar with registered reports, this is a, an, an open science method or, of publishing whereby this peer review process is split into two. So first of all, uh, for the so for the stage one, you write an introduction and a methods and then a very detailed data analysis plan. And then that's submitted to a journal for review. And then based on the kind of comments from that, uh, you are hopefully invited um, to resubmit once you've addressed the kind of reviewers concerns and then hopefully you're issued with something called an in-principle acceptance and then that means that regardless of what you find as long as you follow your data analysis plan the journal will publish your results and this is kind of an effort to to stop this kind of you know um, cherry picking of results and p-hacking and hypothesizing after the results are known um, so yeah so it's been a really useful exercise to do that and actually at our last reproducibility session I, I gave a talk on on, you know what what a registered report is and how to do it um but you know in talking about like ha, like the kind of barriers i've encountered or like how easy it was to embrace that like it was i didn't have to worry about collecting the data because the data is already there so i could like i knew exactly what the data looked like in terms of you know how many people i had what variables were were available and like you know the, this the sample size so it was very easy to let's say for example isolate 10% of the sample and do some pilot analysis on that and then have this kind of holdout sample that I wasn't going to look at at all and then I could do all of my confirmatory analysis on that sample but like you know that's not something I could do in my smaller data set that I've collected myself so um, I think it's been quite interesting um, in that regard but I think regardless of you know what like so registered report I think is kind of quite a big undertaking and, and definitely front loads the work but it's been it's been a wonderful exercise and I would definitely definitely recommend it if your project suited that of course you could do a pre-registration which is but also a way of kind of just pre-registering your analysis and kind of making it publicly available so there's a sense of accountability um but i think like regardless of what your projects like i think there are a number of practices that you can embrace regardless so for example you know having a, a kind of a standardized thorough coding system where you kind of comment your code appropriately make it reproducible um you know make it all publicly available on github that's kind of something i've tried to do so that you know people can see how i went from my raw data that i collected all the way through to the quality controlled cleaned data that i'm using in my models um, and then i suppose just about like documenting how you how you work and documenting the whole process that's something i've tried to do mm. and you know i think when i'm like writing notes on like okay let's say i've got this you know variable of interest and i'm quality controlling it in a certain way like why like why did i decide to make certain decisions and kind of try and you know make notes for your future self so that it's very clear because the process so yeah so the process is as transparent as possible so i think like 
even if you can't do something like a registered report because of like time constraints or whatever, like you can still, you know, adopt this transparent and open approach to how you do your research. And I think that's something I've tried to, to do within the department, like by creating kind of resources or even if I'm making my own resources, like thinking about, OK, well, actually, if someone was to come along and read this, would it mm-hmm. make sense? And, and, and can it be like, you know, shared within the group? Um, so that's kind of what I've tried to do. I can't think of anything else, Laura. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. think you've set an amazing example in our department for like what it what you can do with um, register reports. And I hope, I just hope that more people will follow. Mm-hmm. And um, my track record with open research is a bit less impressive, but I am trying to adopt the same sort of like attitude as much as I can. So I'm on a project around a clinical trial which um, was already established before I arrived here. So there's more more people involved. Um, so I've hit a few walls here and there <laughs> trying to um, um, convince people that open opening up the research is the way to go. Um, and now, particularly as we're and we're um, we're we're almost finished with the data collection just now. And so we've got this um, other group that is mostly in charge of the data and like the main um, statistical analysis. And my sort of sub-research will be, um, it's, a, it's a, a clinical trial on, with chronic pain patients. And my sub-analysis will be focusing on fMRI data collected um, with this trial. But the main sort of um, statistical analysis will be done by another party. And um, yeah, it's just, it's. I'm trying as much as I can to keep my part as open as possible. So I intend to um, upload that data to open repositories um, once it's all finished and ready for sharing. And I am trying to be very conscious in the way I manage my data and that I, you know, like it's simple things also like naming your, your files in a logical way so that people who will then find your data can actually understand what is in that folder <laughs> and readme files a, yeah, and, read me, yeah. exactly yeah so it's about little things like that as well i think and um other ways um which maybe not regarded as open research practices as such but is that i'm trying to document as much as i can while we're going and then um, that's open research yeah yeah, yeah, yeah it is yeah so right <laughs> so um we've had a change of um research nurses who've been working in the study and I've just tried to create some bit of consistency by very detailed like uh, in a very detailed manner writing down what was done by the previous research nurse how um how should we do um I don't know how should we administer these questionnaires for instance how should we do all this and I know it's like largely covered in the protocol but then still how do you actually like do that in practice what do you actually see when a patient is in front of you those kind of sort of notes I try to um, summarize and also keep that for myself and the uh, research nurse that we started working with then afterwards. So there was a bit more consistency <laughs> throughout the project. Um, yeah, so th- those kinds of things, like documenting has been mostly my my main open research goal. And I, I suppose for um, clinical trials, we all, you always need to um, register a protocol. So that's been registered um, and we also uploaded some documents on the open science framework. Um, now I'm working on a data analysis plan for the research, um, which is coming along. <laughs> uh, 
And then I hope to um, to publish that on that OSF page as well before we start conducting any of those analysis. So it's more like I'm more taking the pre-registration approach because that seemed um, in collaboration with the people that I am working with for the, this project. I think that was more feasible. Um, but, but I think in the future, like yeah, I think we find yeah. out something really like interesting there that like you know like it's just about all these contextual factors that affect your ability to embrace open science mm. and like you know so I was kind of like you know a year and a half into my PhD when I kind of heard about these things and like you know I was able to fully embrace open science and, and do a registered report and um, for my data analysis project but that was like you know my my idea and I had the support of my supervisors to kind of go and run with that but you know I think when there's multiple parties involved and like you know when when this is kind of a new approach to science like I think you know it, it can get complicated but like one one thing that I suppose has kind of you know d developed out of conversations like um like the one Laura was just describing there is you know trying to educate people that like you can do that that this is the way forward for how we do research and you know we and if you can kind of like communicate that ethos and, and that practice to people at the earliest stages of their career then it can really make a difference and so that's mm -hmm. one project that Laura and I um, were involved with so we in collaboration with the psychology department at the University of Edinburgh we delivered a, a mini lecture series for yeah. undergrad so these were for like final year psychology students who were doing their first bit of research so you know these are it's like early early career researchers and you know just teaching them about like really basic things like you know being transparent in how you document things writing a proper readme file naming your files consistently and then just breaking down all of the different elements of a research project and and it was really I think helpful for us as kind of a reflection exercise mm -hmm. to just I suppose think about okay well what are all the key ingredients of a research project and what kind of details do you need to include and I suppose because like a lot of the time you know even though people are aware of all of these of all of these different kind of ingredients in a research project like you know your variables your covariates your you know what kind of inference criteria are you going to use to kind of you know uh, I suppose assess whether or not your hypotheses are supported but like I think people tend to go through the motions quite a bit it's kind of mm. like because if you're always if, if the focus is on this significant p-value or this effect size like you can kind of just like overlook what comes in the middle and just focus on the output so I think one thing that we were really trying to do is just to get people not to think about like how they're doing their science but also why like you know why are you including this specific covariate like what you know what role does it play in your analysis and just really kind of getting them to be very I suppose like introspective but then also to really interrogate the the robustness of their plan and the different ingredients so that people fully understand what they're doing and why so that was been that's been a good output from well, yeah, interesting. The kind of the the diversity of the context and and the, the necessity to be kind of constantly self reflecting or to to a couple couple of themes that came up. I think that actually leads into a nice um, a nice thing which Laurie mentioned previously uh, that you're that you're about to organize you are organizing this Edinburgh Open Research Conference, and I think those are exactly some of the themes which are are going to be explored. But uh, but tell us a bit tell us a bit about that. Right. So, yeah, it's um, it's really exciting that we got the opportunity to organize this this year. So um, we're collaborating together. So it's Edinburgh Reproducibility, the wider organization of the Edinburgh Open Research Initiative. So both, those two are both grassroots, mostly researcher driven organizations. 
and um, and the library research support team at the university. Um, we're all working together to um, to organize this event on the 27th of May, um, which will be a hybrid event. So it will be open for an online audience as well and um, for people from the university to attend in person. Um, and we've got um, a lot of different submissions um, that, we're, that we're featuring at this conference, so mostly themed around the eight pillars of open science um, that are um, stipulated by the LIRU. Um, so that's the League leading of, League, of European, League of European Research, Research Universities. So based on their documentation, the library have also put together a um, roadmap for the university to map out where we are in sort of open research goals and what still needs to be done to get closer to reaching those goals. Um, so that's been kind of like the, the background um, to what we've been organizing this conference with. So we're covering teams like themes like um, open research, um, so research integrity, um, citizen science, um, how to incorporate open research in teaching and mentoring um, and uh, fair fair data as well. And um, so we're getting a yeah quite a few topics that we'll be covering on that um, on that day. We have some workshops as well. Some workshops yeah. we're doing. Um, so there'll be um, well, for instance, Neve will be doing a workshop on <laughs> register reports. Um, we also have um, someone coming in to, to explain about, for instance, a data version control software. Um, we've got um, people from the Ford community, so the framework of reproducible research. <laughs> I'll need to look this up. <laughs> research <laughs> and, te and teaching. So they've got a yeah, really nice um, online uh, website where they collect loads of um, resources for open research and how to embed this in teaching and lots of interesting examples. So some, um, Flavio Acevedo will come and talk about this. Um, uh, we've got uh, our keynote speaker will be Stephen Curry, who will be delivering uh, a talk about research integrity and kind of reward structures for incentivizing open research as well. And yeah, we just we just have lots on. <laughs> Fantastic. So, it, so it's kind of a that's great. And that's also, it's great that you're, as you said, it's, I think you said it's jointly, jointly being put on with research services. So it's really nice. I think it's really nice that you're, you're bridging that gap. And because it seems to me there often is a, is a gap between research services and, and research. And it's, it's actually quite interesting that, that open research, open science is, is stepping into, to perhaps fill that gap into, or not to fill the gap, that's not the right word, you know, to bridge the gap, to actually provide uh, com uh, communication channels, because it, when those, when those channels are less developed, it's often hard to, to kind of artificially um, create them, artificially instigate them. Uh, but it sounds to me like kind of just by chance, you, you stumbled on something which is, which is actually proving very effective and probably because it wasn't planned by someone higher up, it just, it just happened. But also shows that that the research services side is is actually really keen. I know this from my own personal experience as well. They're desperate. They're keen to inter interact more more effectively with researchers, and they're you know they've they've obviously seen this as an opportunity from from their point of view. Uh, but it's really it's really a nice example. So so one of the things which which struck me 
uh, as I mentioned, uh, I was uh, I recently attended this can, uh, Canadian group, which is trying to start the Canadian uh, Canadian Association, uh, Canadian something research network based on the UKRN, and they had what, some of the people that were interested in in getting that started was someone from the McMaster uh, University chapter, and you know, like this, like just you know, this example you have of, of collaborating so effectively with research services at Edinburgh, that might be of interest to, to other chapters and other universities. To what extent do you do you do you have time? Probably not much, but or find it possible to to share experiences with what what other chapters are doing and and look at, at joint initiatives. Yeah, I suppose so. Like I think reproducibility, like as a as a kind of network and as a platform, like there's a Slack channel, for example, and then on the actual reproducibility the website there's kind of contacts for all of the leads at the various universities across the world and they have like over a hundred chapters now so it's fantastic that this slice of reproducibility i don't think we mentioned this earlier but this was set up by a group of researchers at oxford um a number of years ago and it's really just kind of like exploded since yeah. in terms of its in terms of its reach and its impact um but i suppose yeah like the like the kind of you know, so I think our reproducibility is a bit different to other uh, networks in that, yeah. like, you know, we so most of, well, just this is from our kind of understanding is that most of the reproducibility chapters kind of do a more like kind of traditional journal club where they discuss a paper. Um, and I think, I don't know, I can't remember what event we were at. Oh, actually, we're, I think we were at some kind of um, like reproducibility social event yeah, a couple yeah, of months ago. Yeah, and I think they yeah. were, people were very interested in, in how we went about setting up a, a working group. Um, so, and that was something that we really wanted to have from the start because, you know, we're like both of us kind of acknowledging that we come from a field. So like neuroscience psychology, where open research is quite prominent, it is kind of, you know, at the, well, hopefully at the fore of most people's minds. Um, and like, you know, that, that's not like that. If we, if we were to just base, reproducibility on our experiences that wouldn't be representative of the wider community and kind of the wider open research yeah community so we tried to kind of the yeah. wanted the working group to kind of reflect broader disciplines but then also to reflect people at varying career stages and I think when we when we did mention that at the social people were quite keen but I suppose we like we actively like like we have our like we post all of our material on our YouTube channel and we're quite active on Twitter, but kind of beyond that, I suppose where time is limited and like you know this is quite a big undertaking for us to do in our in our free free time. Yeah. <laughs> um. So yeah, we haven't really like had made formal links, but like you know we'd be very happy for people to get in touch with us if they can learn from. I think we've done. Um. When we opened the working group up, that was like um a decision we also made when we were basically. Um, asked to do it on a university-wide level. Mm -hmm. And I think at that point, we already had some people from research services expressing some interest. Yeah. So they were already more familiar with this open research framework. And I think at that point, some people started coming to the sessions and they started you know, asking about how can we get involved? Like, So basically, like something like this, where, where people can ask you um, questions about and, and maybe give some... We, we also use them a bit as a steering group for deciding which kind of sessions we were going to um, host. And um, I think if, if you just open those groups up to library and research support um, staff as well and, and and get people sort of in the room together, <laughs> even if it's a virtual room, that's when you can make people feel included as well. Because 
um, I think that's that's an easy way to go that you have some control over. But like formalizing um, this this connection between parties is is difficult because also, for instance, like Edinburgh uh, reproducibility, it's uh, we do most of our activities within the University of Edinburgh, but we're not formally part of University of Edinburgh. So those structures are sort of like um, different as well. So which is, you know, could be considered also a good thing because we don't have to, um, we're not limited in certain ways, maybe um, as the library might be. But I think organizing activities together, organizing events together can be a really good way of getting people together. And then also, um, I, I should have addressed this a bit more, more when I talked about the, the conference, but we have some sessions, for instance, a workshop also um, detailing which kind of services there are for the University of Edinburgh, uh, at the University of Edinburgh for promoting open research and, and learning about open research. And then also we're going to have this session, which is going to be kind of like a feedback session about this open research roadmap, um, which is going to be a, a good opportunity for both researchers and support staff, again, to come together in a group, share ideas, um, get different perspectives. But it's just, I think, yeah. I think just kind of about... Facilitating discussion. Yeah, yeah. I think it's just like, it's been really nice that reproducibility has become this kind of discussion space and this kind of forum for collaboration and for sharing of ideas. And like, that's something, like, I think it's been such a pleasant surprise that that's what reproducibility has become because, yeah. you know, normally the structure of our sessions is we have a, you know, 30 to 40 minute talk and then we have a Q&A afterwards. And like some of the most insightful kind of, you know, nuggets of information have come from that discussion. Because I think sometimes it can feel quite isolating if you're the only person in your group mm. or one of a few people embracing these practices. Like, it's nice to know that there are other people out there. And I think it can, like, personally, anyway, it's been a really nice, like, yes, just support network to know that, like, you know, this is the right way forward. Because yeah. um, it's, it's very daunting if you're, like, kind of trying to do something <laughs> that's very, very different to, to how, you know, you are aware of, you know, previous processes working and then the groups um, your groups kind of approach to things um so it's been really nice that reproducibility has become that and i think one thing that we were both very clear on from the start is that like we wanted reproducibility to reflect the needs and wants of the edinburgh research community and yeah. uh, so you know setting up something like a working group and kind of creating this discussion between the research researchers and then university support staff has been a really nice way of kind of you know I suppose getting around some of the silos because I think sometimes mm -hmm. like university like when you think about it yeah like university universities are huge like you know there's a couple of te I don't know how many students are enrolled in Edinburgh but it's really big like yeah. you know um so I think you know yeah just having get getting people in the same space and getting them to chat and because I think a lot of the time like you know the research research support staff you know have all of this expertise and have of all of these supports but sometimes I think it's difficult for researchers to know what exactly is available so it's just about yeah. when I was like oh did you know that this is happening in this part of the university and just kind of connecting people that way has been really nice I think the conference is going to be a great place where lots of this um, discussion has taken place online of course because of um, the pandemic and then now we're going to some of us are going to see each other in real life for the first time and it's going to be very nice to sort of consolidate those bonds um, and hopefully then like uh, researchers and research staff, uh, support staff attending can sort of get more um, interaction at, you know, this physical conference as well or the online part of, part of it. But um, yeah. Yeah, that, that would then lead on to uh, 
to other things, but who knows exactly what those will be, but that's great. Well, listen, I think that's a, I think that's a really positive uh, um, kind of note to, to, for us to wind up on today and uh, looking forward to the, looking forward to the conference. It sounds like it's going to be fantastic and also, and also uh, groundbreaking as well. So that's great. So, um, well, anyway, this has been, this has been great. And I, as, as uh, it's, it's been great for me personally, just because you, as, as uh, in a way, as expected, I learned some unexpected things. So uh, it's, it's been very informative and, and, and educational and, uh, and thanks so much to both of you for, for that inspiring conversation. Thank, Thank you, you so very much. much for having us. <laughs> okay. Well, that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed the discussion. The Fair Data Podcast is provided by fairdatapodcast.org and produced by Mehroz Ahmed. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts, and follow us on Twitter at Fair Data Podcast. New episodes are released every Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. UK, and 5 p.m. Central European time. Next week's guest is Petra Ritter. Petra is university professor and head of the brain simulation section at the Charité Hospital in Berlin, and is involved in leadership at a number of important open research infrastructure projects and organizations, including the BIH Charité Virtual Research Environment and the International Neuroinformatics Coordinating Facility. See you then.